and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry, and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Don't be afraid of asking the wrong question. Understanding that perspective from their point of view unlocks a different type of conversation. Today I'm talking to Jay Bart, who is now the Programme Office Director for the Nuclear Sector Deal. Jay lives in Bristol with his partner and young family. Welcome Jay, it's lovely to see you. Thanks, thanks Andrew for having me and very much looking forward to our conversation. Lovely. So um, we were chatting earlier, you grew up in Slough and went to school in, in Slough and also went on to do an apprenticeship there. So tell us a little bit about what, what you were like at school and the sort of things you enjoyed and didn't enjoy and that sort of thing. I really enjoyed school. School was a really enjoying enjoyment part of my life. I, it was something that I used to wake up in the morning and I used to, you know, it, I didn't have a problem getting to school early or staying on late. School was quite a fun, fun time in my life and fun memories of school. I, I suppose in my later school days, in, in secondary school in particular, I found school quite challenging and, and it was interesting. Most of that was because I didn't realise or know that I was dyslexic. So it was quite interesting. School didn't have the tools or the capability of understanding it. So particularly in classes like English, I was seen more as a disruptor uh, as opposed to someone that was um, kind of keen and learning. But I didn't really understand it. and I don't think school did either. But other subjects like science, like technical drawing, metalwork, woodwork, sports, loved them. Absolutely loved them any any sport activity that was going on I was involved in some way or another in the team or individual sport and and yeah passively kind of really really enjoyed that and that's uh that that I think that drove me to a lot of other things like um uh, learning martial arts as well now tell us a little bit about that what did that lead to when I was at school, a bunch of friends, you know, martial arts was, was Bruce Lee was big at the time. So there was a lot of talk and discussion about martial arts and movies that were going on. So you'd watch a movie with our friends. I thought, yeah, let's, go and, let's go and learn something about this. So we joined up with the local Kung Fu club, about three of us. And we went along, went one week, missed a couple of weeks, went another week, missed another few weeks. And, and it was interesting, probably about a year and a half later, I went along to the class and I'd seen people that had started to train and go to the class after me progress ahead of me. So they were taking their belts. They were moving on. They were actually teaching me stuff that I'd, I'd already known. I was, I, I was angry and I was, I was like, how have I let this happen kind of thing almost. It kind of drove me then to say, right, I'm never going to miss a lesson again. Seven, eight years. I probably never missed a Sunday training session in that time. And that, that took me to get my gradings, to become a, a back belt, to become an instructor, to be also become part of the British squad, to go and compete internationally, to win European championships, position and world championships. So my, I suppose my highest claim in the competing circuit is a bronze medal at the world championship. And and to this day, I still I still teach one class a week. 
in Bristol. And for me, it's 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 not necessarily the competing, but it's actually the passing on of knowledge. Oh, it's fantastic that, and it, and it's a, it's a great what a fantastic lesson to learn at that age because often you look at other people and you you see people who are more naturally talented or gifted in certain areas. And you often think, oh, I wish I was like them, I wish I was like them. But what you don't realise, which is what you learnt, it's as much about your sort of mental attitude and your personal commitment to development and that work ethic and all that sort of stuff than it is about the natural ability. You put the two things together, then, you know, you get you know people like you who achieve fantastic things. But you can't do one without the other, can you? I'm guessing that that lesson maybe found its way into, into your work and your career as well. You left school and you went and you did an, an apprenticeship in electromechanical engineering. Um, coming out of school, I applied for a number of different apprenticeships. I was successful in getting a technical apprenticeship with, with, with a company called Nicholas Laboratory. And it was the first year off job training at Windsor Maidenhead College, learning all the kind of basic skills of machining, turning, electrical work, plumbing, car maintenance you name it you know we covered we covered all kinds of stuff which was great and then it was one day a week evening class at college and four days a week on the job training so that was four years which led me kind of to the end of the apprenticeship so then I started looking into universities went and visited I don't know numerous universities all over the country and I narrowed it down to two universities so one was UWE in Bristol and the other one was Salford University and what drove me to those two in particular were wind tunnels and how they used wind tunnels to develop or learn kind of um, aeroplanes and technologies and wings. And eventually it, I ended up coming to Bristol. I did four years at UWE doing uh, aerospace mechanical engineering course and then qualified at the end of four years. Do you agree? I was just wondering whether there was any impact uh, around the dyslexia that you'd talked about at school. So yeah, that realisation kind of came in within, I'd say within the first term of university. That um, And and then therefore, um, I then started to understand and learn a bit more about it and get some support and help on it. And that was, um, that was really, really good because it was, it was more about strategies about how you help yourself to learn with it as opposed to there's something wrong. So I suppose that in some ways that was another quite an interesting drive to say okay right I understand this now I I can I can do something about it or try and try and help myself it's not it's not a a lack of capability or intelligence it's just you're you're wired in a slightly different way and you have to you you know use that and I think for me I've been able to use that and drive that through my career through my passions to 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 get to where I am today and what I'm doing and what I like doing, enjoy doing. That's great, isn't it? So after university then, you went and you worked with, um, with Rolls-Royce. Tell us what it was like to sort of go through the doors of Rolls-Royce on that first day. How did it feel? I suppose I was just overwhelmed with, with the scale, the size, the brand, the, the history, um, the talent that is there. Yeah, I, I think I was just totally overwhelmed with the whole scale of it and, and really kind of Really, really proud, as well. That you know, this is such a a, a big, large organisation that's in the forefront of what it's doing and how it's doing it. And you know, um, I've got an opportunity here. What did you learn about yourself during that maybe early years at Rolls Royce? 
what you enjoyed, what you found you could turn your hand to and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I found, so I, I joined in the engineering department. So I was, I was um, in the vibration department. It was a very technical role, very heavily theory based in terms of dynamics and understanding the dynamics behind products and their failure modes and making sure you design those failure modes out or you move them outside of their kind of range of failure. I was asked to then join the EJ200 project, which is the engine for the Typhoon fighter and run a new product, the first stage of the single blade turbine, which was right at the front end of technology in terms of the engine. The reason for I was asked to join the project was because the current product wasn't meeting the life expectations and they wanted to develop a new one. And I was asked to be the wet package owner for the development of the new blade, which was absolutely fantastic. And I would say it's probably one of the technical highlights of my career because I was able to take a product that was 30, 30 to 40% design complete all the way through into production certification. So every Eurofighter that's flying around today is flying around with those turbine blades in. Oh, fantastic. So um, a real kind of, I look back on it, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that made a difference. That made a real difference. But it allowed me to get involved in so many different things. So there's a program at the time I was running called Blades Now, which is, all, which is basically a very early, early, early version of 3D printing. It was using stereolithography technology to develop a near cast finished blade and working with different casting uh, methods to, to get you need to get different coatings, different materials, different manufacturing processes to drill the holes. So such a great variety, modeling, stressing, all the different things um, that are involved in developing it, as well as kind of testing the engine and, and, and you know, doing live strain gauge testing stuff. So yeah, absolutely a real, real important part of my career, I would say. Yes. And presumably also you're working with all sorts of different people with all sorts of different skills. How did you approach sort of leadership in that sense from the people side of it? That was, that's a really interesting and good question because so, so I'd come in, you know, as a direct entry, not as a graduate. So, and there was a whole host of graduates that are going through a graduate training program. So they'd got a program where they'll move and they'll change and they'll learn about the whole business because they're moving around to do that. And, and I didn't have that opportunity it was a bit intimidating, if I'm honest, when I came into that role. I suppose one of the things that did drive me was uh, from quite, from that point, again, another theme kind of going through my career was, was doing the right thing, working it out to say, is that the right thing to do or not? Because uh, as I'm sure you've seen through your career, there's so many times that you are driven down biased decisions for various reasons. Whereas really, if you listen to your instincts and you, you pay attention to what's going on around you, I think everyone knows what's right and wrong. I, I, I think human, as humans, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And, and our upbringing pretty much tells us that as, we, as, we, as we've kind of evolved. Yes, yes. So how do you approach those difficult sort of ethical decisions, which you're absolutely right, we all face them. There's a few that come to mind. The one I'd, I'd share with you is very much about where you had a situation that someone had gone down a route of doing certain activities and processes because it convinced a load of people that it was the right thing to do. As they worked their way through solving that problem, it became evident that it wasn't. However, the issue that they face as a personal was their personal credibility because they'd just taken some very senior people down this route. So 
so when I was doing this particular role, it was it, it wasn't right because of what I learned as I've gone through it. So then you had to kind of have that kind of conversation with them, and they were more senior than I was. So that that in itself was quite a challenge. And I I remember for for days and nights, how am I going to approach this? How am I going to approach this? Do I just let it go? Do I just don't say anything? Do I just kind of just wait until it eventually kind of falls out that this is the wrong approach and therefore we need to do something different? And I couldn't I couldn't really work out an easy way. There was no easy way. There isn't. I, there never is. So then I thought, how do I raise this with them? So, so what I did was we, at, the, at the end of a meeting, walking out of a, a meeting, walking down a corridor, I had this conversation with them and just said, look, I just want to check with you. I'm new to this. Um, so I kind of, I, I tried to play as many things as I could to, to soften the approach. I said, I'm new to this. I don't quite understand it, but we've done this, we've done this, and we've got here. But now where we've got to is kind of, I think, starting to tell me, uh, saying this, I'm not sure if that's right or not. What do you think? So it it was kind of, it was the softest way I could approach it without getting a real grilling or a battering or 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 senior person saying you're rubbish, get out of my way, and kind of it, it could have had a, a career effect. You know, it could have, yeah. So so I was really nervous about it, but it was really interesting because I think on reflection he opened up. He actually said, "You're right." this isn't going to where we should have gone. And I think we should take an action earlier. And then he asked me my opinion. What do you think we should do? And I was absolutely gobsmacked. I didn't know what to say. I was just, I was just like, oh, okay. Uh, 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 let me have a think about it. I just didn't know what to say because I wasn't expecting that, res- that, that response back. But he it, it obviously realized himself. And I think maybe, maybe he didn't have a way of been able to express change required here and maybe someone else bringing it and helping them to bring it to their attention gave them a bit of leeway to say actually someone else has come in and looked at it it's fresh and spotted these things you know we should think about doing something a bit different and we did right uh, I, I, that's a great story because it, it it also shows that work isn't about it's not purely about logic it's about people and the fact that you stopped and thought about how you're going to approach that conversation, realised you had to say something and then thought for a few days about how to say it, sort of shows how you think about the other person and how they're going to receive that. That's the other thing. Often those difficult conversations aren't as bad or as difficult once you've sort of opened the subject in a thoughtful way than, than they might be. But it's the right thing to do, isn't it? And, and it's interesting that happened, I would say, quite late in my career. So up until then, I was quite a shy person from school and, you know, I didn't really speak out in the meetings. I almost spoke when I needed to speak rather than uh, say stuff or repeat stuff. And, um, yeah, I'd, you know, that very late on in my career, that thought process actually happened. And And I think if I look back on it, it was probably triggered by some training I did, if I'm honest, and it was to do with looking through different lenses. And I have a lens, you have a lens, everyone has a lens that they look at the world through. Then when you talk to someone, most people's views and opinions are coming at it from their lens, which is their background, experience, culture, experiences, pains, happiness, joys, you name it. So, so in some way, that, that kind of gives them their view of the world. 
and you'll have your view of the world. Sometimes they meet, most times they probably don't. But if you can somehow try and understand that a little bit more, you can have a different type of a conversation. And that conversation can unlock things that I'm definitely seeing more so in my roles of the last few years than I have done ever before. Because understanding that perspective from their point of view unlocks a different type of conversation rather than saying, no, it should be this. And then they're saying it should be something else. And then you're arguing about the pros and cons rather than trying to say, well, why are you saying what you're saying and how you're saying it? What's driving you? Why do you say that? Ask them the question. Why do you say that? And then they'll say, I say that because of this, this, this. Oh, I didn't appreciate that you've done that or you've been through that. And therefore now I can see why you're saying that. And, and, and again, like I said, the conversation's really different. And it's quite a powerful conversation if it can be had in the right way, because it, it's influence in the right way. It's not influence in a way of, I, want, I need to get my way but it's influencing where you're taking someone along with you from a point of understanding. And that's, that's for me, I think as you get senior in your roles, as you go through, it's more about that. The deliverable will, will, will be the deliverable, whatever it is. If you can take people with you along that journey and make them understand why we're trying to get there with their point of view incorporated, I think it's a much more powerful method. There's a, a fantastic example of cultural learning. One of my program manager roles in Rolls-Royce, so I was looking after three legacy products by Perspay and Time, all 30, 40-year-old engines, so very much the back end of their life, supply chain problems all over the place, quality issues, in-service problems, purely because it's no longer new and it's all been designed to older methods and technologies. And so you're, you're, you encounter end-of-life type issues uh, as opposed to a new product development type issues. And so I'd just taken over this role. I had a French customer and I had a German customer and we have a UK customer. And so as running the program, the idea was to secure things like spares orders so that we can give the right signals to our supply chain to make sure that they don't stop making some of the things that we need them to make because they're only making handfuls of them every time. So if we can forecast somehow and say, right, we need 300 of these over the next five years, you can maybe do them all in one go and get the economies of scale and quality up, et cetera, et cetera. So I organized this meeting with these two customers, French and German, at the same time. And I had the, the French, it was the Air Force and the local supplier and the German Air Force and local supplier there. We had this meeting. And, and the meeting was a disaster. The French came in late. They're on the mobile phones most of the time. The Germans have come like, we must get to a decision by this point. So you had this constant dynamic of cultural change that was not aligned in any way whatsoever. So therefore, you, we never got to a decision. And at the end of the meeting, it was almost kind of like, well, neither of the, my customers' clients were happy because they didn't get to where they felt they wanted to get to. I wasn't happy because I just thought my first meeting with these, you know, my customers and clients had been an absolute disaster. And, and, and they went away, kind of everyone just went away. And it, and it was like, and I was holding my head and thinking, oh my God, what have I done? I've just made things worse, not better. And, you know, how to resolve this. So I spoke to my executive at the time and uh, he said, take a couple of days to think about it. So I thought about it and then he went back and saw him and said, so why do you think it didn't work? And that was the first time I started to really try to understand about 
cultural differences. And he says, um, do you think you didn't know enough about their cultures or their behaviours or their lang- or language, uh, etc., just to understand how they go about doing stuff? And I think, yeah, you're probably right. So then we, then we took the whole team on a cultural awareness course. And we did two days. And the, the guy that came in and, and did this, absolutely fantastic. He brought in with him a, a local from that particular country. And then we did you know, two-thirds of a day on France. We did two-thirds of a day on Germany. And we, he went right from history all the way through to today. So he talked about the culture, the behavior, where it comes from, Napoleon's time, for example. Uh, you know, centralization, decentralization, why is this driven certain ways and certain behaviors, information is power, a whole host of different things. We did that for, for France and for Germany. And then we did a role play at the end of it. And we role played the meeting that took place and said, right, you now are going to be the German. You now are going to be the French. You now are going to be the English. We want you to play out using what you've learned now about the way they act and behave, their cultures, what they do, how they do it, why they do what they do. Replay, replay the, um, the, the event. We played it. So I was on the French side. and. I couldn't believe how similar the feelings were inside of me to what the actual event was like. So we then reflected back on that and then we totally changed our approach, totally, to such a point that the contacts I, I made in Germany and France, both of them are retired now, I'm still in touch with today, because we were able to take on board the way they work, the way they operated, the way they make their decisions, how they make their decisions, where the conversation for decision-making actually happens. Does it happen in an office? Or does it happen outside of an office in the social environment? All of those different things. And, and within three or four months, we got to where we needed to get to. And, and also the relationship going forward while I was in that role was probably the best we ever had with that particular customer when you look at it in terms of customer satisfaction. Oh, there's so much to learn, isn't there? That's great. So now I'm going to take you all the way back to the lad who was learning his Kung Fu, thinking about whether he'd do an apprenticeship and all that. Knowing what you know now, what would be your piece of advice to the younger Jay? I'd say particularly probably earlier on in the career is don't be afraid to ask questions. Probably as simple as that. It's probably, uh, for me, I was quite shy when I was at school, even though I was doing stuff that probably you wouldn't, you know, going and competing and, 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 and you know, sparring with someone and hitting each other and stuff. You know, you probably don't think that's quite shy, but as a personality, I was probably very shy. And I think earlier on in my career, if there's one piece of advice I'd say is ask more questions. Don't be afraid of asking the wrong question. Ask the question and see what happens. You know, I think we've heard the, you know, the cliche so many times about there's no such thing as a one question. And that's so true. If you don't know, you, you should ask. And even if it means someone has to repeat the answer or explain it in a different way, because we all understand things and do things slightly differently, then that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, because it means that your understanding, mutual understanding gets to a certain point. That's right. That's great advice, Jay. Oh, look, it's been fascinating chatting to you. I could chat, chat with you all day, I think. <laughs> it's such an interesting story and so reflective and um, a lot of great lessons You're there. You're welcome, Andrew. 
Thanks very much for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.